everyone. My name is Ricky Lee Grove, and you are listening to The Paperback Show, a podcast about the mass market paperback published between 1939 and 1979, although we'll be looking at newer paperbacks as well. I'll be sharing my story of my love for paperbacks, paperback books, reviewing paperbacks, talking about paperback publishers and their history in paperback culture. It's a podcast for readers, although I will mention some collectible uh, items as well. This is our first podcast. I'll be sharing with you my first adult paperback purchase when I was 12 years old. That was Reality Forbidden by English author Philip E. High. It was published as an ace double in which they put two books together, one on one side and one on the other. The other book on the other side was A. Bertram Chandler's Contraband and Other Space. I'll review both of those titles, give a brief history of ace books, and then at the end we'll have a little interview with Lisa Morton, who is a collector of Philip K. Dick books and a lover of paperbacks as well. So stay tuned, and after a brief break, we'll be right back. You're listening to the U.S. Army Blues Band, live at Blues Alley. It's a great album, and you can get it at freemusicarchive.org. Welcome back. Um, I'm going to talk about my first uh, paperback purchase when I was 12 years old. In those days, um, you didn't find paperbacks in bookstores. They were carried by uh, drugstores, department stores, tobacconists. And that's where I found my book. I used to hang out at the uh, Rexall Drugs in Arizona when I grew up. Of course, I loved uh, comic books. I read Fantastic Four and Spider-Man, and uh, I loved Doctor Strange. Anything illustrated by Jack Kirby, I was on it right there. And I had a, an allowance enough to get, allow me to get uh, two comic books. They were priced at 12 cents each. I got 25 cents, and I had a little left over after buying two comics to get a candy. Well, I also noticed that uh, near the comic books was a rack of paperbacks. That's usually how they uh, sold them in those days on uh, metal spinner racks. The drugstore usually didn't do the restocking. It was the magazine distributor that did it. And I loved the covers on them. And I was really, I loved reading. And I was thinking of maybe reading one of those, but eh, they were a little expensive. They were 35 cents and 25 cents, and it was just a little too much. So one day when I was out uh, wandering around my neighborhood in those days, uh, Glendale, Arizona, where I grew up, was mostly agriculture. And on the other side of a big, large field, I found a strip mall. And in that strip mall was a small paperback shop. Uh, it was a tiny little place, and it carried used paperbacks. So I went in, and the first bookcase I saw was filled with ace doubles. Um, they had glorious covers on them on both sides. They were filled with all sorts of interesting images, and I was extremely attracted. And I picked out Reality Forbidden and Contraband from Other Space. I just love the front cover. I'm holding a copy of the book right now. 
And it has a, a strange picture of some sort of robot with a big commanding red eye and two uh, spaceships or aircraft zooming across the front. And then looming in the background are sort of some strange historical characters, a knight and somebody from the Crusades, maybe. And then that, that cover was done by Jack Gogan, by the way. He did quite a few of the Philippi High covers. And then on the other side is a cover by Kelly Frias for the A. Bertram Chandler novel. It's got a uh, picture of um, three astronauts going towards a derelict spacecraft that seems to have been burned on one side. It, seemed to, it seems a bit dangerous. It's very exciting and done in that excellent, vibrant style that Kelly Frias has. So I bought the book, took it home, and read both of them and just adored it. Reality Forbidden was published in 1967. It was his fourth novel. Its premise is a kind of gadget premise, which was very prominent among the uh, pulp writers, in which a certain machine or gadget came into existence and it affected the world. It changed it, it could destroy it, it could uh, change people's lives, change civilization. And um, this fit right into that. The gadget in this novel is a dream machine. This machine allows the operator to control the subjective reality of other people. And uh, no one knew where this thing uh, machine came from, but it changed everything. So the book is set in a sort of um, near uh, future of the time. Most of the world had become banned these dream machines, and they had become somewhat fascistic in their government. The only government that wasn't like that was in Canada. And our hero, Gilead, David Gilead, he's an Englishman, and he sneaks into Canada with another agent. He's been forced to do this because he lost an election in uh, his fascist uh, country. And he's captured. Um, and he's deathly afraid of what they call the dream machines. He's trying to get information about the Canadians and their uh, status of whether they have dream machines or not. Well, the uh, commander Austerly, who heads the... Uh, uh, secret police there, learns that Gilead is deathly afraid of the machines and breaks his conditioning and proves to him that these machines are not as dangerous as uh, he thinks they are and that they can be controlled. Well, in the course of him his uh, turning his mind around, he decides to help Austerly and they realize that he is one of a very few people who actually has a certain resistance to the dream machines. He teams up with a woman, uh, the only real female character in it, and of course they develop a love interest. So eventually, um, Gilead works out that he can use his own subjective mind to fight the uh, the subjective machines by coming up with uh, subjective answers to the uh, situations that are given. Well, this leads to a wonderful trick ending in which uh, the Canadians uh, fake a subjective war and uh, drive the uh, other nations to sue for peace. And then at the end, there's a twist ending, and you find out the real villain who has surfaced and the source of the dream machine. I won't uh, um, spoil the ending for, you, for that now. But uh, some folks uh, who have read it have complained that they thought it was a MacGuffin ending. I didn't. I liked the ending. It implied something that was even bigger 
than what Philip E. High was uh, writing. Um, the prose is really good. The, it's very fast action. You can't stop reading it. It's just terrific. Uh, highly recommend it. And then I would urge you to find other books uh, uh, by Philip E. High. The Ace Doubles by Philip E. High are not that hard to find. I got five of them on eBay for about $20. Uh, they're reading copies. They're not prime copies, but you can still do that. Now, as far as Countryman from Other Space by A. Bertram Chandler, I won't go into as, de- as much detail as I did Reality Forbidden, but Chandler was a, uh, a merchant marine. He ran many vessels as a commander, and uh, he took his hand uh, in a second career later in his life with science fiction. And he mastered this uh, element of science fiction that had spaceships in it, and the people who ran the spaceships think of Star Trek uh, with the commander and their naval uh, uh, traditions and everything. And Contraband other, in Other Space features his uh, a character that he wrote many stories and novels about, John Grimes. Uh, he takes him through him being an ensign all the way to being a commander to uh, being the uh, head of everything. And this uh, particular novel, Contraband, occurs in the later cycle when he's a commander. Basically, they discover this derelict spaceship that has been uh, burned on one side. Um, it's great to see that the uh, Kelly Frias cover actually reflects the the cover. It, it doesn't really appear that the reality forbidden cover is reflected in the story at all. Um, but they discover inside an anomaly, um, a strange group of people who are in rags, and they don't look like the people who would who would pilot a spaceship. And so the mystery leads uh, him and his crew to realize that there's a danger, and the danger comes from an alternate reality. Um, uh, Chandler wrote a lot of alternate reality books, and he does it really well. He doesn't write as fast as Philip E. High, and he tends to develop his characters a little bit better. So in a way, The Contraband from Other Space was a more enjoyable book to read, although not quite as uh, hard science fiction as Philip E. High's. Eventually, they take the ship and they use an atomic bomb to blow them into this other uh, alternate world. They discover that the alternate world is peopled by a race of, of uh, evolved rats who are, are causing havoc and trying um, and murdering people and causing all sorts of trouble. Eventually, him and his crew work out a way to solve the problem. I won't spoil your uh, uh, reading for that because it's a really a nice, exciting ending. And they manage to get themselves back into the uh, original reality. Uh, I was really taken by this book and um, A. Bertram Chandler's style, especially his descriptions of the uh, people on ships um, and what their organization is, how they make decisions. Uh, Women aren't featured strongly in it, but there is a strong woman in it. If I had a... uh, a criticism for both of the novels, it would be the gender issue. But then again, it's 1967 and, and gender issues really hadn't had only just started to become an important part of science fiction. The new wave science fiction writers were um, uh, taking this to heart. But uh, the older science fiction writers like Chandler and High, they didn't do that. Um, they stuck with the, with the tried and true. So uh, I enjoyed the uh, John Grimes novels. I've picked up uh, a couple others um, that uh, detail his early years, and I plan on reading more about him. Uh, 
So I urge you to seek out um, this ace double. I think you'll enjoy both books. They're exciting and fun reads. Even in uh, 50 years later, this ace double um, still reads well. The pages are a little bit uh, sunned. They're faded a bit, but the binding is still, still strong. You can get a copy of this for 5 to $10, uh, along with many other ace doubles. There's a complete list of ace doubles online, and uh, I discovered uh, quite a bit about ace, and we'll talk about that uh, when I give you a little overview of the history of ace books in just a minute. Ace Books is a publisher of science fiction and fantasy books. They were founded in New York City in 1952 by Aaron A. Wynn. And it's the oldest continually operating science fiction publisher in the United States. The uh, main editor initially for Ace Books, Donald A. Wolheim, was working at Avon Books in 52, but he was looking for another work. And he tried to persuade A. A. Wynn, who had a name as a publisher of pulp magazines like uh, Ace Mystery and Ace Sports, which is probably why he continued the Ace name. And he convinced uh, Wynn to start a new uh, paperback publishing company. They started out doing Western science fiction and mystery and quickly discovered that science fiction was where they were really getting a lot of attention. Um, They used uh, what was then considered a kind of gimmick, doing the double Uh, book, one uh, published on one side and one on the other side. Um, This, they didn't uh, create this format. This format had preceded them, but they were the best known for it. And that made their books very distinctive. Uh, Also, the uh, editorship of Donald A. Walheim, who brought in a lot of interesting authors, uh, uh, made a big difference as well. Now, quite a few of the books are considered, they say, unedited on the front. There was some editing in it in order to fit the space. Now, the death of owner A. Wynn in 67 uh, led to a, a bit of a decline in the company, but it was held off by Terry Carr's excellent science fiction special series. Uh, Donald Wolheim had a, a hand in that as well. If you wanted to start collecting vintage paperbacks, the Ace Science Fiction Specials would be a great way to start because they're still reasonably priced. The Ace Doubles tend to be somewhat expensive, especially for the uh, more collectible authors. One of the uh, uh, wonderful things about the Ace Science Fiction Double series is that many of the covers were designed by Leo and Diane Dillon, who was a mixed-race couple who did just fantastic covers. Um, also, many great others, uh, other authors were featured in the series, not always doubles. Authors like Ursula Le Guin's Left Hand of Darkness, Alexei Panshin, Rite of Passage. Philip K. Dick had 17 paperback originals published by Ace. All of his books are highly collectible. Samuel R. Delany's Jewels of Aptor, and also William Burroughs' Junkie, <laughs> surprise as part of that. Asimov Foundation series, the first two were published in a bridge uh, form. And Conan appeared in an ace double with Conan the Conqueror and the Sword of Rhiannon by Leigh Brackett. Dune was published by Ace Books, the first paperback publication. And there were many Hugo and Nebula Awards and nominations for Ace. 
1972, Wolheim left the company and it was acquired by Doss, Grosset and Dunlap. In 82, Grosset was acquired by Putnam and Sons and Ace became the science fiction imprint under their Berkeley paperback wing. One interesting uh, side story on this is that um, Donald Wolheim argued that there was a copyright loophole in 1965 and published the trilogy Lord of the Rings by Tolkien without Tolkien's uh, authorization or the publisher, Stanley Unwin. Um, that led to lots of controversy, and Ballantyne issued an authorized edition with a quote from Tolkien saying this edition and no other bears his uh, approval. Ace finally relented, and they paid royalties to Tolkien and let the popular edition go out of print. It was the first appearance of Tolkien in paperback, and it was the edition that I read, The Lord of the Rings, for the first time. I just loved it. The first edition of Ace Paperback started with the D-series, and they were 35 cents each. Those are somewhat uh, collectible. The G-series is the, where reality forbidden um, continues. Look to my blog at paperbackshow.com for lots of covers and links in our show notes. Also list uh, several sources to buy paperbacks online. I encourage you to look for local stores that stock paperbacks. Elliott Bookshop in Los Angeles is a great choice. I'd like to welcome Lisa Morton. She's a full-time bookseller at the Elliott Bookshop and also a horror writer. She writes horror fiction, and she's the former president of the Horror Writers Association, which is an organization devoted to horror. Uh, she has won several Stoker Awards, which is their award for outstanding achievement in novels and short stories and nonfiction. She also writes nonfiction. She's a noted expert in Halloween and uh, has written a book on international history of ghosts and most re recently Raising the Spirits, a history of uh, mediumship and uh, possession. Welcome to the paperback show, Lisa. Hey, thanks, Ricky. I'm happy to be here. Great. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about your uh, Philip K. Dick paperback collection. Um, and I wanted to ask you initially, why is Philip K. Dick such an important author to you? I discovered him about 35 years ago, and which kind of means I was a little bit late to uh, getting into PKD, as I like to call him. But um, I think the first novel I read that just made me go, oh, my God, this guy's amazing, was probably, of all things, Radio Free Albemuth, which is kind of a lesser known book of his, but one that I really love. And from there, I just couldn't stop. I grabbed up everything I could get by him. This was still, um, I think, just immediately after he had died in 82. Mm. So you could still get a lot of these things fairly cheaply. And um, the PKDS, the Philip K. Dick Society, was still around and putting out newsletters that were really invaluable and very informative. And I read those and bought things out of them and uh, just kept going from there. Yeah. Was your source primarily the bookstore, the Iliad Books, where you got the paperbacks? No, this was actually before I started working at the Iliad. Um, I would just haunt every bookstore I could, buy them at bookstores. But I also 
Um, this is back in the early 80s. Like I said, this is not long after Dick had passed uh. in 82. And and this was back in those halcyon days before the internet when we bought a lot of collectible books via old-fashioned printed catalogs. Right. And I was on the mailing list for a few of those catalogs, and I would scour those things and buy up interesting dicks. And um, I can tell you that one of my favorite purchases from those catalogs, and this will make a lot of people just squirm, I'm sure, were signed copies of two of Dick's classic paperbacks that I think I got for $35 and $45. Oh, my goodness. That's incredible. What were the titles? Do you remember? Um, I think those two are um, uh, uh, Flow My Tears, The Policeman Said, and uh, let's see, the other one I think is Man in the High Castle. Oh, my goodness. And of course, at the time, because they were paperbacks, they were, and it was not that long after he had stopped signing things, um, they were cheap, 35 and $45. I mean, even at that point, hardbacks were already starting to rise in price, right. but the paperbacks could still be had kind of cheaply. And um, now I'm really, really glad that I bought those, even though back then that was a, a pretty big chunk of change for me. Oh, yeah, of course. In early 80s, even $35 was quite a bit of money. Well, that's quite a score. I wanted to ask you briefly about the sort of controversy around um, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep novelization? Uh, of course, he became famous through the uh, Ridley Scott film Blade Runner. But there was an issue about him him writing the novelization of his novel. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, yeah, they, they came to Dick and they said, hey, do you want to do the novelization of Blade Runner? And Dick quite properly, I think, replied, what are you talking about? I already wrote that book. And he was really steadfast in that. Apparently, they tried to sway him um, for some time to actually do a novelization. And he said, no, I'm not going to do a novelization. You can put my book out, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, with Blade Runner on it. And that's exactly what they did. Um, so I always really, that was another thing about him that I admired was he, he stood his ground there and said, no, you're going to put my book back out. Yeah. I read that it was uh, quite a bit of money they were offering him for the novelization. Do you remember what that was? I don't remember, but I do remember that he was so happy with the option money that he got for the book when they first optioned it. It was probably the largest amount of money he yeah. had ever seen, and he bought a condo with it. And yeah. um, so I was, I'm was i really happy that at least shortly before he died, he was able to enjoy that. Yeah, that's a, that's a good thing, because he was a hard scrabble author. He, he was... You know what did he? How much did he get for those uh, paperback originals that he did for Ace? Um, what three thousand dollars? Two thousand? Oh, not even that. I think he was writing some of those things for a thousand, and he oh. was—I mean, he was writing them really quickly. He was writing them in thirty days. Yeah. He would apparently just lock himself in his room, and his wife at the time, because he went through five of them, would bring him sandwiches to keep him going, and and he was probably doing a lot of amphetamines. This was the '60s. He was a bit of a speed freak for a while. Um, and he was just producing these novels at this insane rate to keep the money pumping in. Yeah, as many were. I'm not sure that people were using um, drugs like amphetamines, but they were certainly drinking a lot of caffeine <laughs> in order to <laughs> right. keep them to keep them going. Um, so there's uh, was a certain amount of religion uh, in the book, which I think was a satire on religion, which was really interesting, and in that 
uh, people got a chance to see Dick's writing in full force as opposed to it being translated into a kind of noir set in the future. Yeah, that that element would have been amazing. Um, I mean, I can understand why they couldn't work it into that particular version of the movie. Maybe it'll be done again someday, and they'll they'll get that. I also another aspect of the book I really liked was the use of the replicant animals, and mm. you only get a sort of passing reference to that in the movie, but um, in the book. Deckard is absolutely obsessed with saving up his um, bounty money to get an electric sheep, basically, the, the sheep of the title. And um, I, I really liked the idea that the whole use of animals, their importance to the characters, um, the sort of revelation of him finding a living toad at one point out in the desert, mm -hmm. and just that kind of stuff was really powerful in the book. And it is too bad that they couldn't have incorporated that, especially yeah. given the the title. But then again, they didn't keep the title either. So, yeah, yeah. Well, that whole consumer culture issue, which was so prevalent uh, in Dick's mind uh, through fifties and the sixties, that would have been a nice bit of satire for that culture set in the future. Yeah, and it, it I, I actually think his best use of that is in Ubik, which is my personal favorite book. Yeah, um, me too. And I just I for people who haven't read Ubik, um, it actually starts with a very funny scene in which the protagonist cannot get out of his apartment because everything has been so monetized in this future that just opening the door requires money. And he has no money and he can't even get out of his own apartment. <laughs> That's hilarious. I love that book. And I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to talk to you about uh, Ubik uh, as a novel, but also the two different paperback editions you have of it. You have two different ones. Can you tell me about those two different editions? Yeah, there's um, one I think is an American first paperback on that. And then the other one I believe is a British paperback. And the British paperback has absolutely bonkers cover art. <laughs> it seems to have very little to do with the book, truthfully. Um, the American it's got cover a big art, skull on it, this and big then a sort kind of, of yeah. um, hourglass on the top of it. I think right. it was sphere. It wasn't it a sphere paperback? Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, and I mean it's not badly done art. It's just you just look at it and you go, yeah, I mean, mm, no, not really. Mm -hmm. um, whereas at least the American used the spray can, which is a central um, piece of iconography within the book. The central image that they keep referring to over and over and over in the book is the spray can, which is the ubic of the title. And right. the American hardback first edition had also used the spray can on the cover. And it was kind of a bland cover. It wasn't, again, not terrible. It did have the spray can. It captured a little bit of the feel of the novel, but it was a little bland. The paperback cover, at least, is a little darker and more colorful than the American hardback, um, still using the spray can. But it also has this suggestion of like a Japanese rising sun motif, which was yeah. really should have been on another dick book, not not you. Yeah. Yeah. A man in the high castle. Right. But but not on Ubik. That was strange. Why is Ubik uh, your favorite novel, Lisa? There's a, a couple of things I love about it. One of the things that I love is that um, one of the things that really attracted me to Dick was his use of working class people as heroes. Um, growing up reading science fiction, you read so many things that were like Dune, where the hero is some amazing 
Kwisatz Haderach Messiah guy. And, and then you come to Dick and suddenly the characters are just everyday Joes and they have problems with their bosses and they're, they're having money issues and they don't get along well in their relationships. And his novels were just things that I could relate to. It's like, oh yeah, these are people that I know that I, that, that I see every day that I work with, that I'm friends with. And Yet they are in these extraordinary situations within his novels, and and they are absolutely amazing and frequently very scary. I think Ubik is actually um, sometimes even classed as a science fiction horror novel. It is a very frightening book at parts. Um, there is one chapter in it which I consider to be one of the most extraordinarily disturbing chapters I've ever read, which involves nothing but the hero trying to climb a flight of stairs while someone is trying yeah. to stop him from climbing the flight of stairs. And um, it's the kind of thing that as a writer, you read that passage and you just say, oh God, you know, I would be happy to have one passage like that if I write for another 50 years. And yeah, um, yeah. he was just, he just seemed capable of churning that stuff out with extraordinary ease. Um, I, also, I noticed in your paperback collection, which is really large, uh, you had several French covers of books. You had one, I think, was um, uh, Simulacra. Uh, let's see. Yeah, number 594, Jai Louis, Jai Lou, I think. Do you remember that one? Yeah. It had that crazy, yeah. had that crazy picture. Do you remember who the artist was on that? I don't. Mm. I don't know if they even credited the art- artist half the time on these things. Editions Jai Lou, it is. Illustrations yeah. by Sergio Macedo. Okay. Yeah, that was just crazy, wasn't it? Yeah, the the yeah they did some interesting covers all over the world for his his stuff. I'm not one of those completists who has to own every single printing of every single book, but occasionally I would stumble across one that I just thought, wow, that is so wacky. I I gotta have that yeah. one. You gotta have it. I think my all-time favorite of um, um, Dick covers is from the Ace edition of Doctor Blood Money, or How We Got Along After the Bomb. Do you remember that one with the strange um, uh, entity? Yeah, uh, yeah. Ho- hovering over the earth. That one was. I just love that. That's what. That's how I first read Doctor Blood Money, which I think is a is an underrated book in his. Um, his oeuvre, as they say. Yeah, that's a great one. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you before we move on to the next uh, topic, uh, who, what are some Dick novels that you think are underappreciated? Well, the big one I have to go back to is Radio Free Albemuth, um, which I know it tends to get sort of shoved aside because of the other books in his Vallis, usually called the Vallis Trilogy. It's almost more of a cycle um, Divine Invasion and Vallis and Transmigration of Timothy Archer are the three books that are usually considered to make that up. But I actually think Albemuth is in some ways a better book than Vallis, which is kind of what it ended up transforming into. And I really like the political content in Radio Free Albemuth. There's a sort of um, authoritative president in it. Um, who has created a fake conspiracy and is using that to 
um, sort of mobilize his followers. Gosh, that doesn't sound like anything that, that might have happened recently. Huh, recently, yeah. And when <laughs> when Dick was writing the novel, he actually was thinking of Nixon with that whole thing. Yeah. But um, I think he would have been absolutely astonished to see how well he predicted Trumpism. Yeah. Yeah. Now, do you remember what edition the Radio Free album with paperback was of yours? I think, um, I can't remember what it was. It wasn't Ace or Bantam. It was a different. I recall having the hardback American first on that, which was brought out by, of all people, Arbor House. It was, huh. yeah, it was an odd little publisher to, for Dick to be working with. And I'm not sure how he ended up with Arbor House. Yeah, he was involved in the paperback originals uh, initially, those one-off paperbacks. So a lot of his early books, the very the first editions of them are paperbacks. And it wasn't until later in his career that he started to get published by in by hardback authors, right? Yeah, um not a lot later. I mean, by the early 60s he was doing hardback um first editions. Man in the High Castle, for example, I think is 63. And that's yeah, a that hardback. Double day, I think it yeah. yeah, I think it was Doubleday that did that, right? I think so. That sounds right. So he was he was getting hardback first editions for some of the books, not all of them. Um, even throughout the 60s when he was churning these things out at the rate of one a month, some of those were hardback. Some were – a lot of them were um, PBOs, paperback originals. Right. Um, when we, as we're closing, I wanted to ask you quickly about another series of books that you've been collecting over the years, the Abrams Discovery series. They're uh, all nonfiction books, and they're kind of pocket guides to different subjects, primarily art and history. Um, what attracted you to that series and got you to start collecting them? Yeah, I love these books. These books are like coffee table books that you don't need a coffee table to hold up. Um, <laughs> they're beautifully designed, little smallish paperbacks um, with tons of full color art throughout and actually really good text. They didn't skimp on whoever they hired to write these things because the text is solid and informative and they're, it, it's really fun to pick one of these up and just get like an instant introduction to something. Um, you know, there's there's one on um, like uh, ancient Egypt and you just it's fun to riffle through it and read facts and see the beautiful art. And I just I love them. I I was astonished to find out there are 111 in this series. I think I've got maybe half that. So I need to yeah. get back to work collecting those, obviously. They although they do the traditional things like books on Rodin and Picasso and uh, history of the Aztecs and the Maya and that. But they also have some unusual subjects in them. Like I noticed they had book on Dada, the uh, revolt of art. They had another one on vampires, restless creatures of the night, and voodoo, the search for the spirit. Um, all of them heavily illustrated. Um, they all follow a, a format in which they have heavily, heavily, heavy illustrations and then a, a text. And then they, at the end, they seem to have a section of documents, um, an index, a glossary, a chronology, and then a uh, further reading section, which is pretty large. It's like uh, four columns, maybe 50 books in there. So they're really nice introductions to the subject that they're they're covering. Yeah, they really are. And um, they haven't been just really, as you mentioned with vampires and voodoo, they haven't been like really stuffy with their uh, what they're writing about either. They even did one on the history of rock and roll. 
Um, oh yes, that's right. I saw that in your collection. Yeah. yeah. So they're, they're really fun little books. They're the kind of thing that it's, it's like if you're tired and you don't know what you want to read, you can pick one of these up and, and just love it for a couple of uh, an hour or so. And it's really fun. Yeah, it's an afternoon read. It's an hour-long read, hour and a half. Now, as I was doing a little research on these, I discovered that the Abrams series, the Abrams Discovery series, is actually uh, English translations of a French series called Discovery Gallimard, uh, which was published by, which was initially uh, started in France in 1986, and then Thames and Hudson picked it up for a while. They called it their... Um, New Horizon series until Abrams got it and they're taking care of it now. But they were all originally French um, uh, versions of it, and these are all English translations of them. Oh, that's very cool. I've seen some of the Thames and Hudson editions, and I I never quite knew what the tie was between those and the Abrams. So, okay, interesting. They all come from one great grandmother there. Yeah, uh huh. I'll see if I. I want to do some little more research and see if I can get a couple of the covers from the Gallimard uh, series of them to compare to the American edition. See whether the American publishers made much uh, many changes in the way they were presented. But I just love them. I just think they're so great. What are they about? Um, maybe a hundred pages long, I guess. About like that, very reasonably priced. I mean, I'm uh, working in a used bookstore. I'm grabbing these things used when they come in, so I'm paying even less than their already small price. But yeah, mm-hmm. they, they're a nice, fun, like little instant reference library kind of thing. That's funny how this type of book has become popular over the last decade or two. The Pocket Essentials book, I'm thinking from uh, and BFI, did a whole series on movies. Um, there's a whole bunch of publishers. Or M- uh, MIT is doing doing a series on different subjects um, in which they have the person uh, uh, giving a whole history of them, like a like a history of uh, um, cans, believe it or not, and then um, objects, different objects like the drone, the toaster. Uh, the publisher you work with, the Reaction Books, has a series of books on animals which I think is really good. I read their their eels, book on eels, and have uh, one on the fox, uh, which is really interesting. Why do you think the that sort of in, short instant guide has become so popular in the last several uh, decades? Hmm, that's an interesting question. I, I mean, it's that format's been around for a while. When I was a kid, I loved the golden guides. Um, and mm-hmm. for anyone who doesn't know what those were, they were little pocket paperbacks that were little illustrated books on rocks or fossils or seashells or trees. Um, and I, I loved those and I loved the art in them and reading about them and learning from them and so forth. But I'm almost wondering if maybe the recent flood of these sort of series doesn't stem from the dummies books. Um, I wonder if those were the first ones that sort of utilized this format of a series of nonfiction things. Right, right. It'd be interesting to do some research to see on that. Well, they were certainly the books that were the first that were fantastically successful. I mean, everybody wanted them. There were copies of them. But you're right. It would be interesting to to do some uh, background research on that. I think I'll do that and see what I can come up with. I'd be interested to oh. know. 
Yep. All right, Lisa, thanks so much for uh, spending time with Paperback Happy today. Um, we love your collection of Philip K. Dick books and your Abrams books, and uh, we hope you'll come back to the show sometime in the future. Oh, I think that could be arranged. <laughs> All right, we'll see you. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks. Bye. And that's our show for you today. I'd like to thank Lisa Morton for uh, coming in for an interview and sharing her love of Philip K. Dick and its paperbacks and uh, her Abrams Discovery series. We'll be back in two weeks with M. Strange as our interview guest, talking about his Vampire Hunter D collection uh, from Dark Horse Books. Make sure you head on over to uh, paperbackshow.com for uh, show notes and links and uh, scans of many of the books that we've talked about here. And also for information about our show, myself, and our future plans. Thank you very much for listening today, and uh, keep reading paperbacks. Paperbacks.